0: Ready? Well, good morning again. When uh, I first moved to Troy, we happened to move next door to uh, a couple that were uh, <coughs> both teachers. And he, within a couple of years, became a principal of one of the schools over in Bloomfield. And uh, anyhow, he and I both enjoyed drinking beer. Uh, and so there were many a, a summer evening when we would sit on our patios, either his or mine, and and drink beer and commiserate. But mostly we like to talk about God stuff. Um, he had been raised a, a Church of the Brethren, otherwise known as German Baptist. They're one of the peace churches along with Mennonites and Quakers, uh, up in a small little town up in uh, Northwest Michigan. And he was baptized in a river and he had to be baptized going forward rather than straight up and down or backwards, because otherwise it was an invalid baptism, just the, uh, the nature of the dictates of their particular church. And I was Presbyterian at the time. His wife was Roman Catholic. They were raising their kids Catholic. So we would sit out back and, and drink, and we'd uh, talk theology. And uh, this quote that I'm going to give you sounds like something that he and I would conjure up some night uh, being kind of inebriated, we'd come up with something like this. Mm. But this was actually quoted uh, and became the basis of uh, an extremely important school of uh, Buddhism in China in the 6th century. Other than the devil, there is no Buddha. Other than the Buddha, there is no devil. Sounds like something heretical, doesn't it? I mean, it's like somebody has drunk and they've had too much sake or soji or something. There's something wrong there. And I'll explain it a little bit uh, uh, more in depth later on. I watched a, meeting, a movie the other day called Winter Meeting. I love watching old movies. This was a 1948 movie on uh, Turner Classic Movies. And it had Betty Davis and uh, Jim Davis Jim Davis this was his first movie the Jim Davis who would become Jock Ewing in the Dallas series later on this was his first starring role and um, he was a Navy veteran just got out of World War two and uh, unfortunately almost all of his shipmates have been killed and he can't understand why it is that that he survived there's no reason for it and um, He just can't believe that a loving God, he had been a practicing Catholic, in fact had wanted to be a priest as a younger child, he just can't believe that a loving God would allow the horrors of war as he experienced them. He had a lot of trouble with this and this trouble leads him to try and get rid of his anxiety and his his anger and whatnot and and so he goes to booze and, and women or booze and broads, as one of his buddies says. You're getting way too much into booze and broads. And, uh, but he's looking for relief. He's looking for understanding. And he meets Betty Davis, and the two of them are both uh, intelligent, uh, intellectually inclined, and uh, they start a relationship that is physical, but is probably even more spiritual and intellectual. And they lead one another down a path of eventual. Redemption and salvation, uh, and he eventually does go to become a, um, a Catholic priest. Well, the movie talks about you know the, dif- the differences between the good old you know the spirit and the flesh. You know how we 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 want to do this God stuff and whatnot, but the flesh just keeps holding us back. You know, all of our desires, all of our wants. Uh, how do we reconcile this? There seems to be a, a dualism that we live in the midst all the time. You know, God's stuff is over here, and the profane, everyday stuff is over here, and never the twain shall meet. You know, it's like there's this great gulf between God and, and humankind. And it uh, creates a lot of anxiety in our lives, and we do various things to, to try and lessen that anxiety. One of the things that, um, that Gary and I, his, my next-door neighbor, his name happened to be Gary, too, we were both interested in Eastern religions. We didn't know a whole lot about them, but we were both interested in the approach that Eastern religions took, that rather than God out there and humankind over here, God grows out of humankind. It's a whole different approach. Everything is from within rather than from without And uh, as I went on my path and eventually started doing retreats and and whatnot, he became more and more interested. Unfortunately, he also became uh, more and more uh, involved in alcohol and eventually uh, died from uh, his drink. Within the context of Buddhism, there's even a dualism, even though we talk about the divine and the the physical being one and the same. The great monk and Indian philosopher Nagarjuna lived in the second and third century in India. And he postulated what he called the two theories of reality, or the two truths. The ultimate truth is that everything is empty of existence. There is no self. Everything is fully independent or interdependent on everything else. Fully dependent on everything else. And then he developed the second truth, which he didn't know if it was real or unreal, but it's our conventional, everyday truth. You know? For me to say that, ow, that's not real, is crazy. That hurts. You know, somebody pinches you. I feel the pain. It is real. I'm not going to tell you, oh, well, that's not real. I don't feel it because it's dependent on all these other things. It hurts. One of the things that the uh, Dalai Lama always used to say, too, you know, people get lost in emptiness, but if somebody hits you in the face, that hurts. You know, there, There is a conventional truth, and we've got to recognize that. So we have this conventional truth that we live by day by day by day where I am independent of you, and you're independent of Kelly, and we're all independent of one another. At least so we think. That's how we operate. Well, this monk, G.E., that I quoted you about the devil and Buddha, he was, uh, um, besides being a, a Buddhist monk, he was also a pretty, uh, pretty deep thinker. And He questioned Nagarjuna. He said, that doesn't make any sense. It's like we're living within a dualistic system again. There's absolute or ultimate reality, and there's provisional or conventional reality. It's like never the two shall meet. What is the relationship between them? And he postulated the third truth. And the third truth is the middle way. The middle way is the ultimate and the provisional are one and the same. Ultimate reality is manifest through conventional, everyday reality. Everyday reality, provisional reality, manifests absolute reality. They are fully interdependent. They are one and the same. There is no difference. That is what is ultimate. Well, <clears throat> how, does this, how does this play into how, how Buddhism developed then? Well, as Korean monks started going to China, they started studying what's called Tiantai. This happened to be the name of the mountain that Zhiyi had his monastery on, Tiantai Mountain. It was called Tiantai Buddhism. And they started bringing that theory back to Korea. What was developing in Korea at the same time through Venerable Wan and through Venerable Jinul and through our venerable Tego was this idea that Rather than focusing on differences between all these schools of Buddhism, all these doctrines of Buddhism that have developed since it started in early India, let's focus on the similarities. Let's pull from each of these what seems to be the same or very, very similar. And Korean Buddhism developed a whole unique approach to looking at Buddha Dharma. And Korean Buddhism Although it's much closer to Chan Buddhism in China, is really different from Zen Buddhism in Japan. Zen, Zen Buddhism is kind of a whole different animal. And um, in Japan, what developed are sectarian schools, focusing on the differences. We got the Zen school. We got the Pure Land school. We got the Tiantai school, which is called Tendai. We got the Esoteric school. And they are independent of everyone else and don't have a whole lot to do with all the other schools. And they have different ways of looking at their doctrines, they have different ways of practicing, really different ways. And like never the never the two shall mix. Korean Buddhism is just the opposite. Although there are twenty-seven different schools of Buddhism within Korea, they're virtually when you go to a, a, a temple of any school you're gonna do Gable, you're gonna do the Heart Sutra, you're gonna do all of these things that are very, very similar. And what is different are the cultural aspects that develop within Korean schools. Not doctrinal aspects, but the cultural aspects. And uh, I I wore this particular kasa today just to kind of focus on uh, what goes on um, in Korean Buddhism. In uh, 2000, uh, 2001, I guess it was, I decided to fly out to California, and there was a, a retreat being led by a Korean uh, Korean Buddhist clergyman, a chanting retreat. You chant Kwansei and Bosal all weekend, except that that was being held at a Soto Zen Japanese monastery, and, and the head of that monastery was actually one of the original disciples of uh, Reverend um, 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 Shunro Suzuki, who started the San Francisco Zen Center. And his name was Bill Kwong. Bill Kwong was a Chinese-American mailman. And he had the route where San Francisco Zen Center started. and he used to deliver mail. And he thought, what the heck is this all about in there? What are they doing in there? So he started visiting. And he eventually became one of his first like eight or ten disciples that was ordained, I think, I think Saul was ordained in like 1970, uh, Soto Zen priest. And he started the Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, and that's where I flew out to. And uh, it's an 88-acre uh, monastery, uh, retreat center. Uh, they practice every day, and it's right in the middle of wine country in uh, Santa Rosa, California, Sonoma County. And having been experienced with Korean Zen, uh, I was a little bit shocked when I got into the Dharma hall in there because their altar was probably about a third the size of ours. It was just like a little, a little box that was there. They had a couple of candles on it, and they have a little Buddha statue that's about that, that big at most, maybe even smaller than that. They had some incense there, and I think they had a, a thing with flowers on it, and that was it. That was, the, that was their altar. This 88-acre monastery, this was their altar. I'm like, wow, that's pretty sparse. They're truly deconstructing everything, you know, deconstructing reality so they can rebuild it up again. However, they also have a 15-foot statue of Quan Se that was given to them. It was, it was built by some famous artist out east in New York City for a client. And this client, for whatever reason, didn't want it anymore and had to find someplace, someone to give it to. And it came in three pieces. It was carved from wood. And and, uh, so um, Sonoma Mountain threw a lot of gifts and donations uh, because just just shipping it from coast to coast was, I forget, they told us how much it cost. It was a fortune just to ship it there. And there were only a couple places in the country that had the room. Uh, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, their ceiling in their dharma hall is way, way, way high. They had they had room to get a 15-foot statue in there. So this thing was shipped out there and then re-put together again there. And so they got this little main altar in one hand, and at the other end, here's this huge Bodhisattva statue there. And it was just a, a, quite a... Um, Disconcerting thing, they have this little small little thing. this, this big Bodhisattva statue. So anyhow, we, we we circled around the Bodhisattva statue most of the weekend chanting Kwan Sanyam um, Bosal. Kwan Sanyam um, bo And I could barely, none of us I could barely talk by the time the retreat was done. But that was our practice for the weekend. And um, much... Uh, Starker, you know, everything was essentially black and white. All of the uh, we Koreans uh, We had on our graves like, like we do here um, They all had black black robes white around the collar here and those were dharma students little bibs, black bibs and, um, It was pretty severe, pretty austere and pretty plain you know, other than the great big uh, Bodhisattva statue. But it's the way it's practiced because of the fact that Zen schools in Japan are completely sect- sectarian and they do it this way. Whereas Zen schools or San schools in Korea and China to a greater extent but but not as much as San schools in uh, Korea. Because of the fact what Venerable Shi Yi says is that everything, the ultimate and the provisional, are no different. They are one and the same. There is no duality. They are one and the same. Everything is manifested through everyday life. So we have big gold statues and lots of color, and we have penguins over there that that, that have all kinds of color and various characters and whatnot, because all of your senses are a manifestation of your Buddha nature in all of your senses can be used to help realize that Buddha nature, unlike Zen in Japan. And so a lot of people, we call this a Zen temple here. And the only reason we use Zen, our, our, our tradition doesn't stem from Japanese Zen. It stems from Korean Zen. But Zen's a westernized word now. People understand Zen. Let's say, what's a San Temple? They had no idea what a San Temple is. What's a Chan Temple? They had no idea what a Chan Temple is. But they understand the word Zen, even though traditions are different. So I want to finish with this reading here from this book here, Zen Zen World, Zen Calligraphy, which actually happens to be a Japanese Zen art book. Listen, if you would, It's called Bushin which is Buddha mind. In Korean, we would say shinbul. Shin could be faith or or mind. And we would say shinbul, the uh, mind of Buddha. This is another way of saying Buddha nature or divine nature. Buddha mind is born in Buddha mind. Buddha mind grows old in Buddha mind. And after all, Buddha mind dies in Buddha mind because of the karmic nature of language, we have to use dualistic expressions. The truth is, however, Buddha mind only, nothing else. When we look at our lives from that point of view, something that is unbearable becomes bearable. Something that is unforgivable may become forgivable. Gratitude increases. Arrogance decreases. After all, this universe is nothing but Buddha.